some of it is what what grocery stores do to keep us in there longer. Like uh, music, for example. They've studied what music should be playing during like the day right. to get you more in the mood to spend more, to come back more often and all that. So that's why 90s music is always being played at a grocery store. That apparently is the hook. Amazing. And don't you find yourself at our grocery store singing along? Constantly. Right. Yes. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Lainey. I'm the creator of LaineyGossip.com and a talk show host and entertainment reporter. And since it's the season, I just want to mention I hate turkey. I'm Duanna Taha. I'm a television screenwriter and producer, and I may have discovered a magical spot right in our own neighborhood. That, and also we get into the mailbag to end the year, to end 2019, to end the decade of work. Your perspective and feedback on all the things we've been talking about, plus the one issue we haven't yet. Which, of course, is the Ruth Wilson-Sarah Trim controversy coming out of the affair. This is Show Your Work. So, I know you love my theories. Okay. Come on. Yes, you do. I love most of them. So, I have one that I want to run by you, and I'm not sure if it is, if I'm being influenced by the season and feelings of warmth or if this is real. Okay? Okay. I think that our grocery store might be magical. The one that you and I both go to. That's right. I already am down. You know I have my favorite grocery store checkout person. I fucking love her so much. Well, yeah. So you have – this has been – we're crossing media a bit. This is something that you are uh, letting people know on Instagram. You have your grocery store person that you have a crush on. Mm -hmm. You love seeing her and Mm -hmm. so forth. Yeah. I, I know who she is, but she's not – that's for you. Yeah. She's not special for me. Thank she's, you. That's for you to have. Other people feel the same way about her, I should say, because I've since gotten messages like from people on Instagram, and they always go to her too. But yeah, listen to Duane, everybody. She's mine. Yeah, but my point is, even though this grocery store is – it's a big conglomerate. It's not some indie whatever, no. right? Shocking to me, Duanna, because you do like the, like, indie whatever place. Yeah, but we have to talk about if we're going to do this. How close is the grocery store to my house? Like, it's probably a question of meters, right? It Even though it's a big conglomerate, even though it's overpriced, I just find people are always cheerful and nice. Yes. That uh, there's always, like, kind of a special interaction. Today, even though it's in the giant holiday rush... Uh, my cashier, I noticed was, uh, there was a child doing a magic trick for her, Mm -hmm. like a card trick. Right. And both of them were deeply, deeply amused by this. (laughs) I think it might be a magical place. Like when people talk about like a magical toy store that things happen or, you know, this one enchanted cottage, 
I think our grocery store might be magical. I agree. And not all grocery stores. No, 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 no. Some of you walk in and they feel cold and impersonal. Yes. And you do not and you do not want to spend more time in them than you have to. But our grocery store feels like a hug. I think it feels like a community. Yes. I do. Not and just at this time of year either. No, I really feel as though and like there's uh, new people, you know, there's a Starbucks in there now. Yeah. I told you it was corporate. Uh, but, you know, there are people working there. There was an older lady who was clearly learning a cash register possibly for the first time. Yeah. And everybody was really supportive. Nobody was being weird and impatient. Yep. Uh, you always tend to run into people. Like, there are sight lines. Yes. I think it's a bit special. I think it's special, too. I think the people who work there, who many of them I know quite well, I know their faces. Like, if I saw them outside of the store, I'd know where I know them from. Absolutely. Where You don't just have that weird, like, semi-familiar thing? Where do I know thing? you from? Yeah. yeah. Like, there's a woman who works behind the meat counter. I like her because I think her measurements are amazing. You know what's hard? When you ask for a pound of flank steak, right? And they have the slab of the flank steak there. Uh-huh. And they have to eyeball how much to cut off from the slab. She is the most accurate. It's, th- th- this, is, this is also why I like going to the grocery store. There are games to be played. I, I don't disagree with yeah. you. Like you won't. See, I favor, um, I like the people, there's a subsection who, a subset of employees there who wind up in the garden center in the summer. Okay. And I really like the garden center people. Like even in the winter when there is no garden center, yeah. I like those people mm-hmm. who are selected to go outside. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah, you guys know what's going on. Yeah. Anyway, I agree with you. Our grocery store is indeed magical, and it's rare for, you know, the big commercial grocery stores to be magical. I don't think all of the, all of the, I don't know, what do you call them? The branches of this particular brand are magical? No, no, no. That's not what we're saying at all. Yeah. Um, but there's something about it that's a little bit special. Yes. In fact, I think when you guys moved here, you used to go to a different grocery store, and you've since switched because... You can't really deny no, it. No, I always used to go to this one. I swear to you. I thought you guys went to some Value Mart somewhere. He goes to a Value Mart uh-huh. because he doesn't have the list of things I need. Like, he always gets the th- same thing. Wraps, bread, whatever. Uh, yes. Yeah. I don't, I... He could eat the same thing every day I, for a month. This is a... I, I don't want to put it on gender or anything like that, but this is a discussion I've had in my house. It's like, don't you want to be inspired and excited when you go to the grocery store and you're like, oh, look at this. I can make something with yes. this. And like, and it's a bit different every I time. I always know when they introduce new products. Right. I always know when they move aisles. This right. is a thing. Once a month, I'll go. They'll have moved an aisle. I'll have a little bit of like a meltdown and then I'll recover. But now I've realized... It's also a regular thing in my life to have a meltdown at the grocery store because they've moved something. But it keeps you on your toes. It's evolving. It's growing. Yes. Obviously, we're not going to do, you know, 45 minutes on the grocery store, especially the corporate grocery store. But just in case you're on a long drive, I just want you to picture this. So this grocery store is at the corner of an intersection where there are actually three grocery stores. There is a... (laughs) like a discount price one, mm-hmm. and there's a we're fresh, organic, and amazing one. Right. Um, all are chains in one way, shape, or form. Yes. But you can have your pick, and I feel as though ours is a bit special. I've been to all three, and it just, it feels... And like, again, this is not usually your jam. You are a contrarian. You don't usually go for the big box. 
Um, and this is 100% a big box. Oh, it's for sure. Like it's, yeah, it is a grocery store. Like there's nothing personal about it or there shouldn't be. But I think somebody is hiring special people or the people there somehow like working there or something. And it always just feels warm. I really like the fruit guy, you know, at the cut fruit stand. We always smile and have jokes between us. So I'm just saying, I think it's a special place. The cheese person, woman also is great. Right? Yeah. And not just at this time of year. So um, come visit our grocery store. Maybe not during the holidays, but, uh, you know, crazy lines. We're not saying, we're not kidding. I will say, though, that to relate it back to our podcast, Show Your Work, Uh there is a branch of study on the academic level about grocery store theory. Have I talked to you about this before? I don't think so. Yeah, so they've um, commissioned a study. I read it a a couple years ago. I believe it was out of the University of Guelph. Sorry, I love that you have this just in your head waiting for the day two years from now when I'm going to talk about grocery stores. The University of Guelph has a food research lab. And so part of their research in this lab is to do with grocery store best practices and strategy. I mean, some of it is what what grocery stores do to keep us in there longer. Like oh. music, for example. They've studied what music should be playing during <laughs> like the day right. to get you more in the mood to spend more, to come back more often and all that. So that's why 90s music is always being played at a grocery store. That apparently is the hook. Amazing. And don't you find yourself at our grocery store singing along? Constantly. Right. Yes. And slowing down? Maybe a little, yeah. And of course, uh, you know, smells and things like that. Like I know that there is the science of shopping. Yes. Right. So this research lab says that they're there to help consumers shop. Quote, the objective is to understand better how people are thinking about food, how people are making decisions, says Mike Von Massau, associate professor in the Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics Department. Are there ways we can encourage people to make healthier choices? Anyway, yeah, there's someone's job it is. Like, I over there, there's someone who has a job um, studying grocery stores. Mm-hmm. I feel like I could do this job. Like, I want that job. If I could add any more jobs to my existing jobs, I would love that job. I have thoughts. Yes. Um, I have things to add. But again, that's, it's really exciting to me. If I could, if we could, we should do a podcast episode there. <laughs> hey, we- University of Guelph, hit us up. Oh, I thought you meant at our grocery <laughs> store because we could also do that. There's available. But yes, somebody is doing a good job. Anyway. Anyway. Here we are on our holiday precipice episode. Uh, We are hours away from full, like, Yuletide celebration, right? Yep. And so we had the plan that we wanted to really dig into a lot of your emails and, you know, things we'd like to watch and talk about and so forth for the holidays and so forth. But there was one email that... uh, really put a sharp point on the format for this episode? Well, when the Ruth Wilson article came out in The Hollywood Reporter a few days ago, we didn't cover it on the site because you and I were talking about it and we had a feeling, you really had a feeling, that another, a part two, an addendum would come out 
And it did. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why we held on it. But I said on the site, I let people know, hey, we're going to cover this on the podcast next week. Mm-hmm. And um, we were also doing mailbag. So we did get an email from somebody who read me saying, Duane and I are going to talk about this on Show Your Work. And she has sent the email that really is the liftoff point for our discussion. This is very timely. Um, and it just so happens we can also work in one of your emails. Let's hear it. Okay, so this is from Lisa. Lisa says, Hi, Lainey. I watched the first few seasons of The Affair and the sex was often rapey. I don't remember that particular scene against the tree and that would be referring to the Hollywood Reporter article about Ruth Wilson's dispute against The Affair and Showtime and there's a scene against the tree where they talked about how she was unhappy with it. Yeah, we're going to get into it more. That episode is in season two, I believe. Uh, But Lisa continues, I do recall there was one sex scene that stood out as particularly uncomfortable to me. It was probably that one. There was another thing that really bothered me, treatment of the character that Ruth played. And now I wonder if it was some kind of payback, but I could be reaching. I think it was at the beginning of season three when it started out that Allison wasn't around because she had a mental breakdown and had abandoned her little daughter, Joni, which was ridiculous. The first two seasons featured the loss of her first child from drowning as a major, major motivation for her behavior, but it also informed her character. Now we're supposed to believe that she abandoned her second child. I didn't buy it at all. Duanna? I that from season three? Can you confirm? I, yes, I know what, uh, what Lisa's talking about. I think uh, it's probably a good idea to do a tiny, tiny recap of the affair if you've never watched it, because it informs everything that comes after, including these discussions and rebuttals. Mm -hmm. The Affair is a show about a married couple played by Dominic West and Maura Tierney. Uh, He's Noah, she's Helen. He starts having an affair with the Allison character, who's played by Ruth Wilson, and she's married at the beginning of the show to Joshua Jackson, whose character's name is Cole. And so any given episode is told from usually two perspectives. So sometimes it's the two people in the affair, Noah and Allison. Sometimes it's uh, the two sides of a married couple or even, you know, the two men or the two women. That was the basic premise. And yes, there's a lot, a lot of sex in the show. So that's the context of what we're talking about if you haven't known up to now. And you have more, I think, in that email, yes? That's right. So Lisa continues, It served to place her back in the same position she was in the first season. But now, instead of being a homewrecker, she was guilty of being a bad mother. Everyone could be contemptuous of her. She could be a mess again. Joshua Jackson's character, Cole, could once again claim the moral high ground. It felt very yucky to me, but it seemed like the writers didn't know what to do with her. The show pretty much should have ended after the second season. The first, actually. Her character diver... Her character deserved much better. The other weird thing that was never answered was the fact that she and Noah just split up, but it was never given much treatment. There was one scene that tried to deal with it, where they reconnect after having separated, and they break into his house in Montauk and get drunk in a hot tub, and they talk about their relationship. But again, for someone who's basically sexually addicted to Allison, Noah didn't seem to have any problem letting her go, and the same went for her. Of course she'd slept with Cole during one of their fights and had gotten pregnant with his baby, LOL, and that whole storyline where she kept going back to Cole, while it may have made sense psychologically, it was basically just boring and no offense, but Joshua Jackson's character was pretty much a self-righteous bore throughout the first few seasons anyway. 
Lisa continues, it sounds like I really hated the show, but actually a lot of what they did was well done. But hearing about Ruth Wilson's issues doesn't surprise me considering the way they over-sexualized her in the show. She was for sure the best thing in that show and should have been treated as the star in the most important character, which she was. Maura Tierney was also great and for some time, so is Dominic West. The writers didn't know what to do with him either, in my opinion. All right. So here we are. We have a show that we kind of now, not kind of, we have to revisit because there are certain scenes that are being um, put to the microscope in the Hollywood Reporter article, in their reporting, Ruth Wilson did not contribute, wink, wink, to it because of an NDA that she had signed upon her departure from the show. But there are other things to consider here, including Sarah Treem's response. Sarah Treem being the showrunner, the person who created the affair, um, and the person who comes out of the Hollywood Reporter's initial report as kind of the bad guy, if you will. Yeah, one of two. The other person who comes out looking, I think, definitively not good and justifiably is a director named Jeffrey Reiner, who uh, will get there, but uh, behaved inappropriately. Everybody has documented it. It's kind of verified from a number of different angles, and he's still working. So, hooray. I think that the reason why Sarah Treem is coming off to a lot of people as the big bad is because... In this era of calling out shows, networks, showrunners for shitty behavior, and of course in our Me Too um, era, it it feels like, or the accusations against Sarah Treem is woman against woman crime. Yeah, or that she should have noticed or known. That's right. Right? Right. So I think that, uh, where do we want to start? I mean, you have the Hollywood Reporter article. It went viral. Everybody was talking about it. Um, And Ruth Wilson still has not openly talked about it. Let's start right there, actually. You keep saying, wink, wink. Ruth Wilson is under an NDA, right? Part of her exit from the series is that she cannot talk about it. That's the idea. And yet, you and I, I think, feel the same way about this. Um, there's a lot of information in that article that seems as though it couldn't come from anyone. At the very least, her point of view is represented. And very clearly, she thought it was a toxic or a a toxic and hostile work environment. Mm -hmm. Is that the headline? Mm -hmm. I mean, the headline is right. Yeah. Uh, The environment was very toxic. That's a very personal statement, right? I mean... You know, you can't put words into someone's mouth like that unless, you know, those words were uttered at some point. They're not neutral in any way. That's right. That's right. She hasn't spoken on the record. And let's be clear, she has signed an NDA. She has not broken it. However, this Hollywood Reporter article, as said, very much represents her dissatisfaction about her work experience on the affair. Right. Can we come back to that NDA thing at the end? I want to talk about one other thing. Yeah. So, okay. So the reason I wanted to talk about the affair in terms of uh, the kind of show it is and the structure is because some of what we're about to be talking about is baked into the show's DNA. A lot of the conversation around the show, you know, there's the Hollywood Reporter article is probably... I don't know, it's probably 1,500 words, right? 
And then Sarah Treem's response in deadline is another, what, thousand words? Fair? Yep. But… It's lengthy. When the… But when then those articles get discussed in other articles or linked or whatever, they often get shut… They often get chopped down. And what we wind up hearing is too many sex scenes or it was uh, uncomfortable. Like it's such a, a… Blanding out. Yeah. Simpli- yes. It's an oversimplification of what's going on. Yeah. So um, what we learn in the first Hollywood Reporter article is that Ruth Wilson felt or said to some people who then talked to the Hollywood Reporter, from here on out, let's just assume that these are her opinions in some way, shape, or form, right? Yeah. That there were scenes where nudity specifically was unnecessary for the scene. That's a thing that she said. Not that there were, quote, too many sex scenes, but that there was nudity often within those sex scenes that was not necessary. We come from a long, long line of seeing sex scenes done where there isn't nudity, right? There's implied nudity. There's that weird sheet that's on the top of the woman, but down to the man's waist, right? Those are things that happen. Yeah. That was one of her complaints. Yeah. And that's a complaint that you can understand where it's coming from. And that's sort of one of my issues with this whole show is that people are are misrepresenting it as too much sex. And I disagree with that as a, a distillation of what's happening here. Mm-hmm. The show was about sex in a lot of ways. It was about an affair, but it was also about how sex can be power Mm-hmm. about the different ways that sex can be seen from one perspective and another. Yeah. I don't want to give too much credit, but I would say the affair was flirting with the idea of what we are now talking about in the Me Too context, mm-hmm. right? That a situation that can seem fun or consensual or easy from one person's perspective yep. can be loaded or dramatic or whatnot from another. Right. Which is wonderful and also is why this is all kind of heartbreaking. Yes. Right? I agree. And I think it's fair to point out that we, as Laney Gossip, the site, were deep into the affair for a while. Mm-hmm. I used to write really uh, in-depth recaps at a time when TV, at a time when TV recaps were still a thing. Uh, I had lots of opinions about it, and uh, and I think even the show was aware that we were writing those, yeah. you know? So it's that's just all kind of for the fodder. I don't have a problem with the amount of sex per se that was right. on the affair. I like this distinction that sex was almost a character. Yeah, the, I think so for right. sure. And so it is definitely an oversimplification and, you know, and not and a lack of understanding of the show to say there was too much sex on the show. It was, but it's different from saying there's too much nudity. You can portray sex without nudity. Absolutely. And this was one of Ruth Wilson's grievances that the nudity for her in playing the sex scenes, which may or may not have been necessary, but this is a different conversation about the necessity of the sex, the nudity in and of itself was became titillating that it did not serve the storyline 
that happened to be about sex and um, a meditation on what sex means to certain couples and to certain people. Right. Exactly. And, you know, there's a million sort of sub-issues in that, right? Uh, Desire, control. One of the things that the affair used to do really interestingly was, for example, when they showed those two perspectives, uh, the first time, you know, when it was from one perspective and then another perspective, outfits would change. They, you would see that from his perspective, for example, her skirt is much shorter mm-hmm. than it was in her perspective. Right. Who's right? What's the truth? It's playing with your perception all the time. Yes. And with desire and with intention and yeah. all those things. That is not, I don't think at the outset anyway, what Ruth Wilson had an issue with. No. But I'm speaking very carefully because on the one hand, we're talking about onset practices and what's yes. okay and not. Yeah. And on the other hand, we're talking about uh, a performer versus a writer and who has the right to say what's going on with which character. Right. Those things shouldn't be even in the same conversation, but that's where we are. Right. Ruth Wilson felt that she was constantly pressured to be nude for no reason. She's backed up by that anecdote about that director, Jeffrey Reiner, mm-hmm. who... Uh, again, this has been sort of more accurately and widely reported, but he basically, in a nutshell, said to Lena Dunham in public, can you sit down with our actresses and get them to show their tits or some vag at least? Yeah. Is a direct quote. Well, and then we have the phrase from sources saying, quote, over and over again, I witnessed Sarah Treem try to cajole actors to get naked even if they were uncomfortable or not contractually obligated to. So... That doesn't necessarily have to do with storyline. We want to make clear again that you can do a sex scene without having the person naked on camera. Yeah. I mean, the the obvious, well, you can see it in almost anything that had a sex scene before, I don't know, 2004. Uh, we, it wasn't done, right? Or the reference often is Sex in the City, where uh, the sex was played for laughs, but it was fundamentally there was sex in every episode. And there often was no nudity from some of the performers. Anyway, it's very possible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, of course you can. The part about Sarah Treem trying to coerce people to be nude, even if it wasn't, you know, already in the contract, that's not, that seems a lot more black and white. That's really uncomfortable. And yeah. then another conversation is that the sex scenes weren't treated properly on set. That the sets weren't cleared or yes. closed. Uh, often, a, if a sex scene is going to happen, it's only essential personnel are here, please. Right. That monitors, uh, there's usually uh, any number of monitors on a set, but like a normal number is between, say, four and seven yeah. for various places. That the monitors themselves were not turned off when the performers requested them mm-hmm. to be. Uh, and that there just wasn't care taken or that the shuts or that the sets weren't shut down so that random I think there's an allegation that there's a random passerby who just kind of could observe the sex yeah. scene happening. That's troubling, bar none. That's yes. not okay. It's not good practice. That's right. I mean, is there anything we need to discuss there? Is there any nuance in in what we know about that? Well, there's I mean, there's not necessarily nuance. There are just so many layers. Like even the fact that I have issues with the fact of sets having to be, I understand why they have to be closed. You mean during a sex scene? That's right. Right. I get. But 
the if you dig a little deeper there, they have to be closed because there have been instances in the past where you couldn't trust everyone on the set. Yes and no. I mean, yes, or because it's just vulnerable. I mean, I'm not an actor. I'm a I'm a performer, but even though everybody understands that this is my job, yeah. I can still see where it would be hard to walk around nude and then be standing next to somebody knowing that everybody has seen me nude, yeah. but I haven't seen them. It's not an equal playing field. Right. But I think that that is, I think we're trying to say the same thing. There are like different levels of trust happening. Absolutely. And that is also what's complicated. And it's complicated because not everybody uh, adheres to the same standards, right? Even in their own choice. An example I'm thinking of is the Americans, which had enough of its own sex, but it was rarely sexy sex, right? Yes. Um, what? You're rolling your eyes because this is a conversation that we've had. Yes, this is a fight that we've... Con- that's, that was your hook for me. You were like, there's a lot of sex in the show, Lainey. Watch it. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I can watch some sex. And then every time I watched the sex scene, I was like, seriously, this was your hook? This sex is so traumatic. Like, why would you... Why would you want me to look forward to this? In any event, uh, I remember a conversation where... Carrie Russell, of course, became involved with her co-star, Matthew Reese. They're now, like, fully partnered. But he would often yell at the end of a sex scene, like when they called cut, he would immediately be looking for a robe for her, which is kind of standard practice. You get your actors into cover as soon as humanly possible, as soon as there's a cut. And she was kind of laughing at him. Like, dude, it's season five. Everybody's seen everything I got. Right. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, That's to each their own, and she's there with her partner, you know, there's a level of comfort, or that's indicative of the level of comfort on the set. But I guess what I'm saying is that's sort of where some of the blur comes in. One actress is always wanting um, cover and closed sets and and monitors off, and the other is like, who cares? It's fine. It's my tits. It's one of those things where, you know, you try to write rules, but then there's always exceptions. But at the same time, to go back to the initial environment of the set that is in question here of the affair, your boss or the boss of the set, the showrunner, is supposed to understand which actors are comfortable with it and which actors are not comfortable with it and run the set accordingly. 100%. So, right? Yes. And, and run the set accordingly and develop that trust. So for me, clearly… Ruth Wilson had trust issues with Sarah Treem. 100%. When you have trust issues with that person in your one-on-one connection, you also develop trust issues about how that person who you don't trust runs the rest of their set. Absolutely. It permeates everything. And, you know, obviously, we talk about this NDA that Ruth Wilson did not violate. That means that other people who were on the set are speaking from their own mouths, even though they're not quoted, right? Yeah. Which means they saw and corroborate what she's talking about. So that's, yeah, your point is is underlined there. Obviously, there were enough people seeing what looked like the showrunner not respecting people that, that then we get into a problem. 
right? Well, and also there's an added layer of irony here because the show is about different perspectives. Exactly. And so clearly there is a group of people, not a small group of people, who feel that there wasn't trust built on the set, that there was all kinds of toxicity on the set, and then there's Sarah Treem who, from her perspective, handled things the best that she could. Right. So, um, so these are the issues that are happening off camera, mm-hmm. and these are the complaints, and this is why at the end of season three, uh, either Showtime says that Ruth Wilson should be written off, or Ruth Wilson wants to leave, or yeah. whatnot. There's a negotiation about what season four will look like for Ruth Wilson, and ultimately she agrees to X, Y, and Z over some talk of the character, uh, and storylines, yeah. but she will only agree to shoot the show, A, block shot, meaning all of her parts are shot first, not in sequence, yeah. and B, she doesn't want Sarah Treem on the set. That's right. So clearly, yes, there's a problem in that relationship. Agreed? Agreed. Right. Here's where it becomes interesting, because let's be clear, we believe women. I believe women. Uh, if Ruth Wilson says, I was uncomfortable, I didn't like this, then I'm absolutely like, then that happened. Then that's not cool. Plus, as I say, there are so many people corroborating what she says in the, in the, in the Hollywood Reporter piece, yeah. right? But how did you feel when you read the Sarah Treem response in Deadline? Well, I'll address something you said there about, you know, you believe women. Right. And yet, there are two women here. That's right. So to answer your question about Sarah Treem and how I felt when I read Sarah Treem's response in Deadline, well, this is where we've come to now, right? It's much more complicated because here is a female showrunner, and we've established through the history of this podcast that there are not enough of them. Mm-hmm. And when, Oh, absolutely not. And when they do get opportunities, they may be confronted with situations that um, continue to reflect a a certain level of injustice and inequality. Uh, In layman's terms, uh, they don't get the power that male showrunners have, even though they have the same title. That's right. People push back. People won't show them budgets, whatever you want to call it. Right. So now, for sure, you have a female actress who is uncomfortable and doesn't trust her showrunner. Yep. And 100%, no female actress should be on a set where they feel unsafe and taken advantage of. So we're not saying that, like, we don't believe Ruth Wilson. We're saying we sympathize with, of course, anyone being put in the, in the position Ruth Wilson was put into. And yet on the other side, we have, in the past on this podcast, sympathized with female showrunners who haven't been given the same amount of power that male showrunners have had. Yeah, that's right. And one of those examples that Sarah Treem lays out is that she wanted to put a fix in place when she heard about the Jeffrey Reimer situation. Mm-hmm. And she was told by Showtime, no, we got this, we'll handle it. And then they didn't handle it. As far as we know, all that the casting crew was told about that situation was uh, coming from Sarah Treem, was like, it's fine, please don't do that. But the implication is that she was waiting for something larger to come from Showtime. Right. As uh, she said, she asked for them to shut down production, to have sensitivity training, yeah. etc. Um, and that that didn't happen. Yeah. It's also worth noting, because we've discussed it on this podcast, that uh, intimacy coordinators, 
which existed before uh, Me Too began, but are getting much more yeah. attention now, uh, that there was not one employed on the affair, as far as I know, mm-hmm. or certainly not full-time. Yeah. So it's just, it's just a thing to note. Well, the affair also predates all the conversations that really bubbled up to the surface about intimacy coordinators. Like, no one was writing articles about intimacy coordinators, no. like the Rolling Stone article about the intimacy coordinator who works on the deuce, for example. Right. Which we discussed on this show. So there are so many different layers to, to unpack this. It's not about taking sides. It's about to understand, like, these very, very complicated work situations as more people get opportunities and as we're still trying to address the sins and the bad habits of in past workplaces. Um, so on that level, I just want to establish it there, right? You've got a female showrunner in the past and in present who may not be given the same power that male showrunners have had. Um, given their experience or the excuse of what their experience is, and a female actress who's like, fuck this. Like, I'm so unhappy and I'm so uncomfortable. So as I was reading the Sarah Treem article, I tried to keep that in mind. I tried to say, we've talked about female showrunners and the amount of power they're given, sometimes when they're overrun and run over by male showrunners. That contributed to either her own leadership flaws that Mm -hmm. were already in place. Let's acknowledge that. She may have made many mistakes. And have learned them historically on shows coming up, right? Like that she didn't just spring fully formed into a showrunner on this show. That's right. So she may have made mistakes and for sure what happened in the end can be led back to those mistakes. But also her ability or her freedom or her power or how much agency she had to address her mistakes from the very beginning without the network breathing down her neck and stepping in and telling her what to do, which would risk jeopardizing her job as well. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I think, um, you know, I think all of that is, it sort of incrementally steps away the further along we get into any given successful show. The yeah. affair was successful by any measure. Uh, critics talked about it. Yeah. Audiences found it in as much as... Uh, Ruth won awards for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But what I noticed the most about Sarah Treem's article response in Deadline, and if, by the way, you haven't read either of these, I strongly encourage you to read them in sequence. Um Sarah Treem, it says, the headline says, Sarah Treem addresses Ruth Wilson's exit, sex scenes, accusations, and Allison's death. Allison is the character. But in fact, the actual body of the piece almost exclusively talks about the character of Allison. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. And I feel two different ways about that. Yes, me too. I feel eight different ways about it. Right. I feel like on the one hand, it's bullshit because it sidesteps the legitimate concerns that are raised in The Hollywood Reporter, ostensibly by Ruth Wilson, right? Um, But at the same time, Ruth Wilson is every day, every week, every episode on that set is creating Allison. Mm -hmm. And this is the weird dichotomy of what this world and these choices are. Yeah. Um, You have an idea in your head of what you're trying to do in a piece of writing, and then there's a performer who 
is doing something that may or may not be that same thing. Here's what I'm getting at. Uh, so Sarah Dream talks early on about how in the pilot of the show, two sex scenes take place on the hood of a car or the same sex scene from two different perspectives. Yeah. In the first, uh, from Noah's perspective, it looks like Allison is being raped by a man. The second time we see the scene from Allison pers- Allison's perspective, the audience realizes the man is her husband, they've both lost a child, and this aggressive sex has become part of their dynamic in their grief. I would even say that um, it is very obvious that that sex scene from Allison's perspective is, if not deeply pleasurable, definitely consensual, definitely wanted in that moment, even if it's just a a pain erasure, Yeah. right? Treem goes on to list X, Y, and Z sex scenes and talk about how Allison's perspective was adjusted by Ruth Wilson's take on those scenes. She didn't agree in places with Allison's choices or Sarah Treem's scripting of Allison's choices. Right. And so she then begins to play them maybe differently than they were intended. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. So then when it comes to, for example, the the scene up against a tree, it's referenced in The Hollywood Reporter as feeling rapey, I think is the phrase that they use. Yeah. They may have used a word that's more sophisticated than that. Um. But everybody knows that scene that is being talked about sort of midway through the second season. And this is what Sarah Treem writes about here, about that specific scene. We shot a sex scene against a tree in the second season, which The Hollywood Reporter makes mention of. The scene was written from Noah's perspective. From Noah's perspective, Allison is angry at him, but the force of her attraction to him overwhelms her, and they have aggressive but consensual sex against a tree. Did I know that the scene reads as male fantasy? Of course, that was the whole point. The affair was about perspective and specifically about subverting the male narrative, blah, blah, blah. I had faith that our audience understood the rules of the show and they knew that Noah was an unreliable narrator. But Ruth Wilson, who was playing Allison, didn't approve of the scene and didn't want to play it as written. By this point, it wasn't a surprise as we'd been disagreeing on the character's choices since the second episode. We were now at this complicated impasse where I didn't know how to write the character any differently and she didn't feel she could play what I was writing. So that day, as in most cases, we had a lengthy discussion about the scene, notes went back and forth, changes were made, and then Ruth played the scene the way she felt her character would, which did alter the intent of the scene to something that seemed non-consensual. But we had discussed the scene and Ruth made her choices as an artist. Then we brought in a body double to do any nudity, and that was the scene we aired. So you talked about layers on layers mm-hmm. on layers. Mm-hmm. That's complicated as fuck. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, uh, this is where I sort of, I wrap myself up in knots because, yeah, I don't necessarily feel like it was the intent of the creative team to air a scene that looked so rapey, again, to use the technical language. Yeah. But that's what went out there. You know, one of the things we talk about in television is 
it's it's meant to be consumed and enjoyed by the audience or film or whatever, yeah. right? It's not meant to be studied and interpreted afterwards. Then again, maybe it is. Like we have film critique classes or God knows we all read novels and react to them and so forth, right? So maybe it's okay to have the intent discussed later. I get, but it's interesting to go, no, I was writing a hot scene and a performer who has agency in terms of what they portray on their face and their whatever turned it into a scene of aggression and maybe non-consent. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I think that I, this is the most, I don't know, like Pollyanna answer. But I don't know I how deep that impasse must have been where they didn't have the time or whatever to really lock themselves in a room. And I mean, Sarah Treem and Ruth Wilson to be like, hey, like, you know, what's the vision for the show? What's the vision for this scene? What's the vision for this scene? Can we come to an agreement? Because if I'm Sarah Treem and what I wrote wasn't reflected in what was acted, then as a writer, how am I going to fix that? Like, this is, this is the difficulty. And I know, like, let's just recap. Remember, all the episodes are written in advance. So, you know, you-ish, but let's call it, like, they're on a deadline, they're on a shoot schedule, you have the scripts out, and a scene that plays like that is supposed to follow or at least have um, narrative consequence to the scenes that come after. Yeah, sure. So your actor comes along and disagrees with what you wrote in the scene, then doesn't it thereby affect the storytelling. So we go back to Lisa's email where she was like, I don't know what I was watching. So many things didn't make sense for me. Well, when a mistake like the tree adds up over more episodes, over four seasons, of course the viewer is going to be like, who are these people? I don't get it. These decisions are weird. Which then lends itself to Sarah Treem's excusing uh, the way that Allison is written off the show. She says, and I've heard this in other writers' rooms, if we're going to lose this character, this character has to die because if it if she didn't die, we would just go with her where she was going. That's right. the nature of shows like this. Yeah. Um, and they do that with other characters. So she has to die and this is how and so forth. You know, on the one hand, it seems brutal and punitive that the character is sort of, yeah, it's kind of thankless. It's not satisfying. It's not a a joyous situation. No. At the same time, if you are clashing all the way along, and she talks about uh, that they had conflicts in episode one, in episode four, in episode five of the first season, Mm -hmm. let alone by the time we get to the fourth. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, your initial idea for how this person leaves this world, of course, is going to be clouded and marred and complicated by everything that's come in between. Sometimes that's beautiful and a gorgeous, like, my beautiful writing and your beautiful acting elevate this story beyond where it could have been from Mm -hmm. either of us alone. Yeah. And sometimes it becomes a mess. Well, it's not, it's not the first time this season we've talked about this, it's much more complicated because we're working with um, consent, we're working with workplace safety, we're working with trust. But we were, and many people were, talking about this with Game of Thrones. 
and in particular Daenerys Targaryen's character. Yep. Where over the course of six seasons, uh, the showrunners, uh, Dan Weiss and Dave Benioff, were building Khaleesi up to be this very heroic role model female. Savior, almost. And then essentially in two episodes, she does an about face and becomes a mass murderer. That's right. There wasn't enough setup for it. No. Now, in the affair, the situation is that much more complicated because we're dealing with sex. We're dealing with a show that explores intimacy and vulnerability in a really, really um, raw way. And I would add as an asterisk, and I hope this doesn't feel like excuse making, the Allison character is definitively discussed as damaged from the moment she walks on screen. I hope that's not uh, I hope that's not problematic language to use, but she describes herself as being in a really, really bad place. As we say, she's lost a child. It is it is the center of her grief and motivation is in everything that she does. So uh, my point is uh, that there's always a sense of somebody not acting, quote unquote, correctly or honestly. That's right? right. Yeah. And Sarah Treem herself seems to reveal in this deadline piece that what she wrote for Allison a lot was based on personal experience mm-hmm. and how she herself was handling trauma and a terribly abusive or at least toxic relationship. Right. So she's coming from the perspective of, I went through this and here's what I did. Right. And wrong or right, here's how I acted. And so part of Allison was part of her. Mm-hmm. So to your point about the tree scene, it's just very, again, I go back to my like Pollyanna bow-wrapped answer where I'm like, Jesus, I mean, are we waiting until we get on set to have this argument where so many people are standing around, you're on a deadline, you're on a budget, and you have to get things done, um, you know, you have whatever, like technical reasons to get it done given that it was outside, yeah. um, you have lighting to contend with, all of that. And so what you end up with is what nobody is happy with. It doesn't fit your story. And it clearly leaves a bad taste in the mouth for your actor. Like, I don't know why it had to come to that last minute. Well, in defense of both of them, uh, the way that it works is that a showrunner, it, it can go back and forth depending, but that the script is written, maybe it says, uh, I don't know what it says, but it says Noah looks at her, eyes blazing, uh, grabs her when she's about to run off, all of a sudden... There they are in the forest having sex almost despite themselves. Let's say that's what it says. Yeah. But then the director comes in on the day. Right. Maybe having discussed in a tone meeting with the showrunner and others or whatever. But he then comes in and says, okay, you shove her up against that tree. And then really we're going to pan down super slow down her breasts and over her hip. And then the actor goes, wait a second. Yeah. This feels really, this doesn't feel consensual to Mm -hmm. me. The director says, what do you want me to do? She says, get Sarah Treem on the phone. And there we go back and forth. Yeah. I'm, I can see that all happening that way. That that what is written down is only part of how it's then realized yeah. and visualized, yeah. right? So, But I go back to the clarity of what the story is. Do you know what I mean? Like, especially since if this is a story, an overall story about a show about different perspectives, mm-hmm. then there perhaps needs to be an added layer of communication when we're laying out what the story is and the t- even in the table reads. 
Yeah, and some right? shows don't even always have those. Like there are a million different things. But you're right. This here's what it sounds like to me. I I sort of understand Ruth Wilson had a terrible time on a set that seems like it was falling down on making people comfortable left, right, and center. Yep. Right? That's undeniable. That lies with the fault. That fault and and bad functioning lies with fundamentally the showrunner. Yep. To a lesser extent, the studio. And a lot of people have pointed out that uh, Showtime is, like the parent company studios, is CBS, which mm-hmm. has also had a problem with Eliza Dushku on yeah. the set of Bull, which we talked about. Yep. Uh, and I think there's uh, another reference as well. But anyway, that is undeniable. Ruth Wilson had a terrible time. She mm-hmm. shouldn't have had a terrible time. No. Sarah Treem comes in and starts talking about the character and uh, the, you know, the narrative of the show. And you're kind of like, what are you talking about? Why aren't you talking about this actress? But she's saying this actress kind of fundamentally disagreed with and maybe fought me on the narrative of the show. Yeah. Which is not, it still doesn't make it okay that she felt uncomfortable. No. But it does seem, if you're having issues as soon as episode one, episode four, episode five, yeah, it does kind of raise up, maybe you just have two different perspectives here. Yeah, I, I don't, I, and I think that's, I think that's key, that there are two different perspectives, ironically. Uh-huh. So here's where we come to how badly all of this has been handled is Sarah Treem has given us a thousand words on her perspective, kind of dehumanizing Ruth Wilson because the focus is all on Alice and the character. That's exactly right. And Ruth Wilson is bound by an NDA where her perspective in full, even though we wink, wink, winked at it earlier, her perspective is being told via emissaries to The Hollywood Reporter, because, of course, she isn't able to go on record to say, here's why I left. This is the situation. Right. And there are and uh, there are a lot of people arguing, like, fine, Sarah Treme, you've had your say, kind of feel like you've, I don't know, thrown Ruth under the bus, given this explanation of yours and your knowledge that she can't really speak for herself. Uh-huh. She has to only speak through other people. That's right. So when we're talking about perspective, well, we're still lacking the other perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to talk about NDAs and the culture of and why they're okay or not, um, I, I I have no argument. I think that it's it's wrong to suppress somebody in that situation. I would have liked this better if she had addressed the fact that Ruth is being held by an NDA and perhaps why and or maybe saying, I hope she can be released from her NDA so we can actually openly have, or we can at least have this conversation. Well, remember I said at the beginning, I want to talk about NDAs at the end? Yeah. Very neat that you brought us around there. But specifically, what I want to talk about is I read something online I'm not a lawyer, but lawyers, if you're listening, hit us up. I read something online that says, you're, if you sign an NDA, then obviously you're held to it. But if the information that is under the NDA becomes common knowledge through no fault of your mm-hmm. own, then you are no longer bound. Like the NDA doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, which would mean, uh-huh. if that's the case. Yeah. That Which would mean that let's say that everybody in the Hollywood Reporter article 
talked of their own volition, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. And Sarah Treem talks about we had this issue and that issue and blah, yeah. blah, 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 wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I don't know what's covered in Ruth Wilson's NDA, but in theory, once those articles are out, then it's no longer private information, so she sh- necessar- shouldn't necessarily have to adhere to it anymore. I'm sure there are subsection 5, clause B, blah, blah, blah issues here, but if you're a lawyer, please hit us up with your perspective on this. Well, you saw Bombshell, right? Uh, have you seen Bombshell? Not yet. Okay, so in Bombshell, this is about Fox News and Roger Ailes. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicole Kidman plays Gretchen um, Carlson. Carlson. Anyway, Gretchen Carlson had an NDA. Mm-hmm. And um, if interestingly enough, on December 12th, there's a, a headline here at Deadline, Gretchen Carlson renews call to end non-disclosure agreements as Bombshell is set, set for theaters. So, you know, she raised her complaints in an editorial in the New York Times, um, and she says in her Times editorial, when I sued, I could have never known that my story and the stories of other women at Fox would turn into both a television miniseries and a film, and more important, that I would be prohibited from speaking about these projects. Mm -hmm. Um, So, it, I mean, and the Fox News thing thing was so huge, right? Um, and still, there is, like, she hasn't been able to be the face of a lot of this, even though we all know what happened to her because of this NDA. Right. But to the point where she can't even say, oh, yes, so-and-so who is playing me is doing a good job with my laugh or mm-hmm. whatever. Imagine not being able to talk about your own self. That's right. As she says, but had I known that my complaint would help ignite such a profound cultural shift and that I would be depicted on screen, I would have also fought against signing the non-disclosure agreement or NDA that prevented me from discussing my experiences while working at Fox News. She further contended that not being able to speak about her specific experiences means she's forced into silence. NDAs foster a culture that gives predators cover to commit the same crimes again. Now, we're not saying, obviously, Sarah Trimi is a predator. Like, Nobody's saying that here. But this culture of NDAs is a bit bizarre in these respects because, again, Ruth Wilson is only able to represent herself through sources or this person or that person. And this is clearly something that she had 50% to do with if this is the issue. Yeah, it silences the complainant. I almost said the victim, but in the interest of maintaining perspectives. Let's not use that word. But yeah, NDAs are always protecting the big guy and it's bullshit. And in this case, I'm not even sure it's protecting Sarah Treem. It's protecting oh, the it's network. protecting Absolutely. It's right? protecting Showtime and CBS and yeah. so forth. That's right. Because the idea being there could be more that is either legally uh, actionable yeah. or otherwise problematic. Right? So I don't know what constraints Sarah Treem was operating on, not being able to talk about the NDA or at least, you know, ask for Ruth to be released from hers. I'm sure there are a million. I'm sure there are. And no matter how powerful Sarah Treem is as showrunner, a bunch of lawyers don't give a shit sure. about your opinion or your article yeah. in Deadline. They're not going to release you from or release her from that and open you up to liability. But that is the one of the issues that comes up because you're reading a thousand words from Sarah Treeman. You cannot help but think, oh, I get to read your perspective. You get to defend yourself from your own pen, laptop, whatever. But here's someone who can't from their own laptop or mouth 
mouth, really. Right. That said, here's the real-world application that we didn't know we were going to have, right? I love how Ruth Wilson has gone about this. From the beginning, when she was asked about her exit from the affair, she has said, it's not about pay parity, but you should ask somebody else. It's a bigger story. She said back in the day, ask Sarah Treem, right? Yeah. Then when the Hollywood Reporter article comes out, do you feel like that picture, I don't feel like that's a stock image that's come with it. I feel like she posed for the picture that is in the Hollywood Reporter article. That's not a violation of her NDA, right? (laughs) That's a good point. I don't know where that picture comes from, but you're right. It's from a photo shoot. She is, in in her very careful way, she is encouraging people to look into the story, to go behind, you know, to push for more. Uh, and I'm, I like that. I don't think it should have to be how she's operating. You're absolutely right that her NDA is unfair. But given that this is where she is, or if you signed something that you didn't realize the implications of, as Gretchen Carlson points out, yeah, I like what she's doing here. I like that she is saying... Gosh, ask Sarah Treem, you know, um, go read Lenny letter. She didn't say that, but, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I like the way that this is being played within the confines that she has. She's being resourceful. Absolutely. And I enjoy that too. I will say, though, that I hope that our conversation has been like, you know, we're trying to understand and unpack this really thorny issue. Mm Mm-hmm. There is, and so I'm not here to be like, Sarah Treem is the devil. Like, uh, this is not about, like, cancel culture or any of that. But I do have one more criticism of her. Yeah, go. Um, Over 2019, there has been where writers and screenwriters are concerned, one dominant issue, and it's about the writer's dispute with the agents. And... Yes. So we've covered that multiple times on this podcast. Yes. And the, the writer's union, we should say, with the, with the talent agents. That's right. Yes. And yeah. That's right. And the writers themselves have tried to put out public understanding about what their position is. Uh-huh. Because it's a complicated issue. That's right. Right? It is not someone who, um, who just has a very cursory understanding of show business would really be able to follow and understand. Even we on our podcast had to really unpack what the packaging issue was with the agencies and whatnot. But the writers themselves have gone out and really done the most that they can to put out articles, to go on podcasts, to talk about what this dispute is over. And I, you know, this was hinted at on various places in Twitter. I think you and I had an offline conversation about the articles that Deadline was post posting that um, were in favor of the agents and sort of anti-writer some, yeah, and you know what? That is so inside industry. And thank God for people on Twitter who pointed out because yeah. they know that, oh, so-and-so who wrote this or yeah. who tipped off or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I, I know for sure the deadline posted at least two articles from writers who were like, uh, the union's wrong and, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy or I don't want to do this with the agents and, and like, you know, this is, this is a pretty shitty thing. I also listened to Keep It with Ira Madison, and he's had Angel- uh, Angelina Burnett on his show a few times. Angelina Burnett is a member of the board of directors of the Writers uh, Union, 
And she has done a lot of work educating people um, and going out there and lobbying the writers, uh, making sure there's solidarity. What am I building to? I'm building to, I think it's really weird that Sarah's piece ran in deadline. There are certain writers in the industry who felt like deadline was kind of biased against writers, that given that these are trade papers, that their coverage, especially in printing articles that were talking about how the union was like kind of uh, fighting the wrong fight, um, it's really interesting to me. When I saw it in deadline, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Well, you know, I didn't know you were going to bring this up, but I will say uh, just for the sake of interest that as this story has been much tweeted about and discussed and so forth, there have been a number of reports on Twitter. I can't point to one or verify it, but you can find them and see what you think, uh, pointing out that Sarah Treem was one of the people who herself uh, was pro-agent or trying to convince other writers that, uh, that the agents were in fact working in the writer's best interests from her own perspective or because of some agenda or whatever is that's neither here nor there, but it may, I guess, shed light on this if you want to think of this in terms of, you know, who is in support of whom and where people's loyalties lie, mm -hmm. um, then that's an interesting conversation as well. And again, it's not rumors. It's laid out. I think she did this fairly publicly. Uh, and so you can look that up sort of in these threads. Uh, it's, and this is, again, not, we're not like demonizing anything. It's just another layer of complication and irony because of course, uh, this is a writer who in her piece for Deadline was talking about the reality of being a writer, writing this show, running this show, writing this character, clearly arguing for the integrity of the writing process. Mm -hmm. And obviously the um, the the writer's experience of building a character, creating a character, and having conflict with the person playing the character, and yet it's seeming to run in a publication that may in the past, maybe it's different now with Deadline, that has not been sympathetic towards the writers in the dispute. Just irony. Or different levels of, of looking at it. Yeah, I really, I really like that. I'm glad that you pointed that out. Uh, but even you're summarizing it, just now, just gave me one sort of more final thought. And that is that when you say sort of, you know, the struggles of a writer to write a character and a show and create it with a with an actor and whatnot, I think if you ultimately, if you want to create a character unfettered by other people's opinions and, you know, you don't want to have to deal with an actor who doesn't like your take or your perspective on something, you should be writing novels. I think this is the irony and the joy of creating product for the screen, right? It's a two-person, many, many person. It's a 200-person process. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the thing. You don't get to just play paper dolls when the people that you're working with are actual human beings whose actual choices are being infringed upon. I can talk about, you know, the, the honoring the reality of characters until the cows come home, but you have a real person in that scenario who's going to make it into their own character also, essentially you have to share. 
even though the power structures are imbalanced. So that's sort of, you know, it's another, not strike against Treem, as you say, nobody's canceling, but it's a perspective that I think we need to talk about. If you want to write characters uh, purely out of your own brain, you don't want to write them in an environment that is, by definition, collaborative and also has many perspectives involved. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay. Well, that was our short summary of uh, Sarah Treem and Ruth Wilson. But thank you all so much. We got a lot of emails about that, including one person who, after you wrote that we were going to discuss it on the podcast, said, I guess I'm going to start listening to the podcast now. So thank you so much for finding us. Hope it's enjoyable. Um, And we love hearing from you guys. So now we're going to tap into uh, some more notes that you've sent recently. And these two um, have to do with the same issue, really, and also are quite recent, which we haven't covered on the website because this is an extension of a conversation that we had a couple of episodes ago about Gabrielle Union. So the first one's from Olivia. Hi, Lainey. Just listened to Show Your Work on Gabrielle Union, and you and Duanna were brainstorming her next move. You had the idea that she'd do a show about social justice branded with her name and face. Another interesting idea would be if Reese Witherspoon reaches out to join the cast of The Morning Show on Apple TV+, Plus, maybe as a new talk show host for the third hour of the program or something, I could see Reese wanting to support Gabrielle, and it would be great press and followers to the show and to Netflix. That is a great idea. Let's put a pin in that and then get to Rosie's email. Hi, Lainey and Duanna. Love the book of American Gods, enjoyed the first season, and stuck with the beleaguered second season. But now, in the messiest way possible, it seems that they fired black actor Orlando Jones, who wrote a lot of his own lines and was even lined up to be a producer right at the last minute after he'd turned down other jobs. I mean, there has to be more going on here, right? But Duanna, how have things got so desperate? Does the network have no clue how to treat talent? I'd be really interested in hearing you unpack this on Show Your Work, Season's Greetings, Rosie. Now, the reason why we put these two together is because two things. Orlando Jones tweeted his disappointment with the producers, the showrunners of um, American Gods, and then Gabrielle tweeted back at him or reached out to him saying, I want to know more about your experience. Both America's Got Talent and American Gods are Fremantle shows, the Mm -hmm. same production company, so... There seems to be some common ground between Gabrielle and Orlando. Um, and so Fremantle is kind of like in a shitty position right now. It's I'm not the, sympathizing with them. Like it's they're in a shitty position. It's the common denominator is yeah. what you're saying. There's two black actors or two black talent. Mm-hmm. It, uh, and uh, both have grievances. Let me go macro first. Yep. When a show is not doing well, I don't know American Gods terribly well. I know that it was a book and was written by Neil Gaiman. Um, do we say Gaiman or Gaiman? What do we think? I don't know. All right. Uh, and yeah, that there was season one and then season two 
uh, had a change in showrunners, and then that's followed by season three, another change in showrunners. Orlando Jones talks about how he did a lot of writing, maybe even some character Bibles. I He uses that phrase, which is not super common, so it's been a bit murky on what his non-acting tasks were in season two. Yeah. But here's the thing. If a show is not doing well in a season, as well as the network wants it to do, they will change everything. Mm -hmm. It is, there's no sense of let's purify or preserve uh, this, that, or the other. They don't care. They want it to get better. Um, so there's no sense of loyalty or keeping somebody around or even perspective. To your point, last week we were talking about uh, the conflict at Hallmark, about Hallmark uh, having ditched the ads that involved same-sex kisses. And I said, how do they not see how their audience is going to react to that? And you said, they don't care. They're not thinking that far ahead. Do you remember that? Yeah. This is my same thing about... Uh, networks trying to fix a show. Mm-hmm. When somebody, when you say, "Oh, but you can't get rid of that character," or everybody loves Orlando Jones yeah. or whatever, they don't care about that. They're going, "How do we get six million people to watch this?" Yeah. They don't care about the creative. They don't care about the micro. They are trying to get their money back to being the right place. So mm-hmm. that's the micro answer, or pardon me, that's the macro answer. Yeah. Is that no, the networks don't care. No, they don't keep perspective on this, right? Yeah. It's a good example using Hallmark because in not caring, they created an even bigger problem. Right. Exactly. And, you know, that can be the case here too. And I think there are a lot of creative people who are on the side of Orlando Jones. I think Neil Gaiman has said that he's regretful that this is happening. He doesn't have control. He's actually working on another project. Yeah. Um, and you know, and at the same time, whoever is brought in the new showrunner, if you're given, and I've been in this position too, if you're given like, here's what's happening, this is failing, fix it. Mm -hmm. You take no prisoners, you slice and dice, you cut and, and you know, I think partly though, what, is it Rosie? Is that who wrote the email? Or, and the other one was from Olivia. Yeah. I think what's really interesting, though, is what is really similar is we're talking about a lack of respect. Mm-hmm. I read Orlando Jones's uh, discussion, I think, with TV Line after his video on Twitter. Yeah. And he says, if they were going to cut me and had said so in September, whatever, it is what it is. Yeah. That's life. They kept me hanging and I turned down projects and I didn't hear about it until mid-December yeah. and so forth, right? And where Gabrielle Union is concerned... That was also a factor, right? That she, we keep hearing now that they've had sit-downs with her and productive conversations and whatnot, and that's all after the fact. Yeah. Whereas when she was working there uh, and had some ideas or discussion points or complaints, that there was no, there, there, nobody was nearly so forthcoming, right? Yeah. So what we're looking at here at a bare minimum is a lack of, respect and treating people with respect, whether or not you want their like creative contributions, you still have to treat them like human beings. Yeah. It's human beings. And also like the, the, the implication here is that there is this one company with these two members, like two black talented performers and whether or not there's bias at play. 
I mean, who can say? I'm sure there are other people, there may be other black performers who are like, no, I've never been treated anything but gold by Fremantle or other people who are, uh, you know, who don't identify as black who are like, yeah, they're absolute trash. Um, We don't, uh, I don't know whether there's bias at play, but this comes back to our discussion about perspective. It doesn't look great, right? And both of these people seem to think that there is bias at play. I mean, that's how they feel. Orlando Jones has come out and talked about the showrunner, how the showrunner had no understanding of black experiences. Um, And so that's on the table. Yeah, he's absolutely said as much. Um, And certainly where America's Got Talent is concerned, that was overt in terms of don't have hairstyles that are too black, right? And I read something that uh, Nick Cannon experienced something similar when he was there. Uh, that they didn't want him wearing a turban on yeah. the show, et cetera. So, uh, it, yeah, we don't know, but it could. It certainly seems like it points that way. And so if they want to recover from this, then, yeah, they really have a lot of deep tissue work to do. Deep tissue. And frankly, uh, to go back to the irony of it, they were trying to save the show, and it's made it worse. Yeah, I mean, it... At minimum, no matter what that new showrunner is doing, that's not the conversation now, right? Like maybe creatively he's right. Maybe he's like, I can't use the Orlando Jones character. I can't this, that, and the other. But yeah, now that's nobody's thinking about what choices he's going to make story-wise. It's all going to be about look what isn't here and look why it isn't here. So thanks, Rosie and Olivia, for your emails. And we're going to continue with the mailbag with this one from Claire. So Claire says to Joanna, I've just finished Emily Maitlis's autobiography, Airhead, which I adored. It was smart and funny and fascinating behind the scenes of what it's like to work in the news. In some ways, it reminded me of another book I loved last year, Beck Dory Stein's Obama White House memoir, From the Corner of the Oval. How much I loved both and hearing the work stories in these women's own words made me wonder if there are more books of this genre I don't know about. Do you and Lainey have a reading list of work memoirs I can go through? Is there a Show Your Work book club? Well, thanks, Claire. Oh, what a great idea. I haven't read Airhead, have you? I have not. I didn't know it existed until Claire told us about it. Me neither. So it's definitely going on my reading list. But then again, I mean, we really didn't know that much about Emily Maitlis until, of course, the Prince Andrew interview. And we've talked about how she was a fucking boss, superstar, awesome, show your work, like, you know, show your work, I don't know, um, award of the year candidate because of how she handled it and because of... Um, the work and the prep that she put into it. So for sure, now that I know who Emily Maitlis is, definitely interested in reading it. Absolutely. Um, so the Claire asks, do you and Lainey have a reading list of work memoirs I can go through? Is there a Show Your Work book club? I mean, this is my favorite conversation ever. And I'm looking in my my book list here in my library app and thinking about like how long, how much time do you have? Um, how many should I even, should I even list? Just keep going. All right. Here's where I'm going to start. So, uh, if you liked in the, from the corner of the oval, which is, uh, that book is really interesting because it's written like a novel. It's written like it's a fiction novel, but in fact it was happening in real time. 
Uh, my jump off from there is Alyssa Mastromonaco was the uh, Obama's deputy chief of staff, if I'm getting her title correct. Uh, she wrote, who thought this was a good idea, which is all about being a young person working in politics, what that's like. It is a delicious read. She has another memoir, which is more about work in general and how to, you know, grow up and whatever. That is a, a huge one that I love. Another one that I read recently that's much more about work than I expected it would be is Lori Gottlieb wrote, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's about her work as a therapist while also being in therapy. Lori Gottlieb, though, came from the film and TV world. So there's a lot of perspective on that. And there's sort of, uh, she goes deep inside one of her clients who still works in mm -hmm. that world. I mean, I could go for dozens more, but I'll pause while you, you tell us about some you like. Um, well, I mean, the book that we mention all the time on this podcast, Top of the Morning. 100% um, is absolutely one that is giving you exactly what you want. It's all about the work. Brian Selter is the author for that one. Um, and of course, that was the inspiration behind The Morning Show, starring Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. I also love Girls Like Us, written by Sheila Weller about Carol King, Joni Mitchell, and um, Carol King, Joni Mitchell, and Carly Simon. And that is both like a showbiz book, you know, about the, the, the career of these three women, but these are three songwriters. And so it was the work of these three songwriters, these seminal songwriters in the 60s and 70s, um, that is really, really good and really juicy. I... Really also enjoyed You'll Grow Out of It by Jesse Klein. Jesse Klein is a comedy writer and uh, these are essentially, you know, loosely connected essays in that way that a lot of comedic writers are. But Jesse Klein is also one of the creators of Big Mouth on Netflix. And there's a lot about what it's like to be in a writing room and the perspectives that you have on things. Um, definitely an enjoyable read, if not as straight up a uh, biography as some of the ones we've mentioned. And then I'll go with The Beautiful Ones, which is the recently released Prince memoir-ish. Um, uh, it was in process. Prince was working with the writer at the time of his death. Um, it includes like exclusive, never-before-seen photos and scrapbooks that really paint the picture of... I mean, we all know Prince was a once-in-a-generation artist, creator, and we all know about this, like, vault that he has, right? A vault of unreleased music. I mean, he was prolific. Exactly. Like, we only saw a fraction of it. And so, um, of course, it is... Um, I mean... He, after his death, it, it's un incomplete, but Prince had been working um, for some time with this writer. And the interesting story about this is we I interviewed her on the show, on The Social, we interviewed the writer Dan Pippenbring um, about his experience working with Prince. And what's amazing, and this is like more work talk, is he was a junior writer, like a young writer for the Paris Review mm. when he essentially was told, Prince is working with a book and is looking for someone to collaborate with. Mm -hmm. And he got the job. Um, and it's so interesting the way he got a jo the job. He wrote a letter to Prince. 
Oh, I love that. I know. So anyway, the beautiful ones, that is a good one. Well, we should actually save that for another time. Uh, the conversation about uh, collaborating writers, working with people who are not writers to write a book. I've heard a lot of stories and often I think it's a very good experience for the writers. Um, so we should save that to follow up. Uh, I have a couple of quick hits here. If you haven't read The Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes, it is much, much more about work than you might expect it is. It's not really about Shonda Rhimes' life or funny things. It is specifically about work. An old throwback that you may not have on your radar is Call Me Anna by the late Patty Duke. Is uh, It's all about how she became Patty Duke and was a, a child star. But there's really technical work stuff in there. It's not... Uh, it's not a manual because a lot of really terrible things happen to her, but it is very much a, uh, it's very much an inside look that we kind of don't get very much. And also, if you're looking for something that is a little lighter, uh, Someday, Someday Maybe is Lauren Graham's uh, first novel, but it's largely understood to be, it's her autobiography written in fictional form about being a young, barely working actor in mm -hmm. New York in the 90s. Um, there's a book, too, that I uh, started a while ago, haven't finished yet, but I'm super into, um, so we can read together. Life as We Have Known It, um, it's edited by Margaret Llewellyn Davies, but there's a lot of Virginia Woolf in here mm -hmm. um, talking about, um, you know, women and the workplace in her era. Okay. It's fascinating. That sounds really, really interesting. Um, a long time favorite. This could be a podcast. Like, I, <laughs> so. Easily. Yeah. Uh, how many more? I can I can limit myself to one or two more if we want if we want to go tightly. Okay. Um a, another real classic is Hello He Lied by Linda Obst. Uh, this is a book that I read, I think, first in the late 90s, and it taught me more about any, it taught me more about the day-to-day -day of being a producer, which is such a euphemistic term that can mean a million different things, but that book taught me more about being a producer, specifically a film producer, than anything I can remember in recent memory. It's still an excellent read. And I go back to a classic. I think Tina Fey's Bossy Pants is a book about work and the workplace and the process of it. Um, and if you haven't read Bossy Pants, Claire, or if you need a reread, Bossy Pants. I, I think that's a great note to end on. We will finish and I'll immediately think of 15 more, but I think that's uh, a really good point. Yes, there are people whose writing is amusing and is fun, but is fundamentally about the work and it's it's a nice it's a really nice dig in. Okay, so another letter. Here we have a note from uh Jessica. Jessica says, I just finished listening to your podcast this week which included the Hallmark Channel versus 1 million moms. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to share my tangential experience with 1 million moms. Hopefully it makes you and Duanna laugh. <laughs> I've been on the 1MM mailing list for a while, not because I believe in anything they claim to stand for, but because one, I hate them, and number two, they let you change the wording in the suggested text emails that they get all their supporters to send when they're trying to protect the children from the existence of gay people. <laughs> 
I missed the Hallmark Channel thing, but I have in the past congratulated the producers of Kinky Boots for a fabulous float in the Macy's Parade and told JCPenney just how much I supported their inclusion of same-sex couples in their catalog photos. It probably influences nothing, but it's slightly better than screaming into the void. I'm pretty sure that 1MM is a room full of Karen Pence-type women who somebody showed how to use social media. Badly. You just know that all their husbands call them mother. (laughs) The shade. And the subterfuge. Remind me again who sent us this letter? Jessica. Jessica, I love this idea. So basically you're... I'm sure they get some sort of an activation number that says, oh, X number of women or moms have sent off the letter that you sent them, and in fact, you are working against them from the inside. This is dark and amazing, and Philip and Elizabeth would be proud of this spy work. Yeah. I love this. Uh, Thank you, Jessica, for giving us some like, I mean, this is really um, clever um, as you said, was it subterfuge? Yeah. Yeah. Subterfuge? Subterfuge. Subterfuge. Hard G, I think. Subterfuge. Fuge. Fuge? I think so. Subterfuge. Okay. Well, like fridge. We're all, we're all, we're also now a pronunciation class. Maybe it's French and it is subterfuge. I never I don't write know. that word and I never have to say it, but now I might have to. I might have, I might have to add subterfuge into my daily routine. All right, get um, into it. Okay, next, um, from S. Uh-huh. Dear Lainey, read the conversation on the J-Lo episode of Show Your Work. I was listening to the recent Bitch Sesh podcast, and Casey Wilson mentions um, that Ashton Kutcher picked two of her sketches, and one of them Lauren wanted to cut, but Demi Moore went to him and said to keep it. So we've been talking a lot about Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. and how sketches are picked and how the show is run. Um, that's, I thought, I think that's a really interesting tidbit. And of course, it's always like the ex-cast members who, you know, give us this insight. Right. Um, so Lauren wants a sketch cut about Ashton. And I guess it would have been when he and Demi Moore were still married. Right. And she was like, no, 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 this one's good. Right. Because it reinforces something that she thought was good for him, either for perspective or, you know, that she knew he really wanted to play, but maybe he didn't want to tell that to Lauren or something. I mean, the dynamics there are fascinating. Well, especially when you layer on, here's another like book suggestion that, you know, she obviously recently came out with her memoir. Lots of it is work related. Right. About her experience on set and making movies and all of that. Um, and, um, she obviously has, uh, like, you know, some distance from her marriage to Ashton Kutcher now. Yeah. And is, owns, owns her own, like, um, if you will, like, I mean, I don't know that this is the best word to, to use, but owns her own insecurities in that relationship and the mistakes that she makes, but also gives us a lot of insight into that relationship and how it was, like what he asked for how, why she felt inadequate, partly because of her own baggage, but also partly because he was Ashton Kutcher. Sure. I, whatever that might mean. Yeah. Um, And, uh, and so, but also interesting that, you know, there was a time when Ashton Kutcher may have needed Demi Moore to advocate for him. Right. Um, I thought you were going to say, when you said one more book, I thought you were going to say Live from New York, which of course is Mm. the oral history of Saturday Night Live. It is a delicious read and by definition, all about the work of doing the show. Yeah. 
Uh, and to that end, we have another email about Saturday Night Live from Rosalie, yeah. uh, who writes, uh, Dear Lainey and Duanna, I have one more idea about why Jennifer Lopez wasn't more memorable on SNL, and more than one theory can be true. Rosalie, let's write a textbook. She writes, being funny or weird means being willing to not be sexy. The quirky or interesting characters that you imagined for J-Lo would have involved her showing a side of herself that wasn't necessarily conventionally hot at every single moment. I can't remember any role or performance from J-Lo in which she wasn't sexy. She's a hard worker, but she's never willing to present a persona who isn't foremost gorgeous and desirable. I see this as limiting, and it's a reason that all the gags related to her hotness were boring. It's all we've ever seen from her. And she goes on to say, think of Brad Pitt in Burn After Reading, which we did discuss, I think, a couple of Mm -hmm. weeks ago, or Cameron Diaz in Being John Malkovich. Those performances were so memorable because they each showed a sex symbol being unattractive, awkward, or gross. The fact that they could do this demonstrates their acting talent, and the fact that they would do it demonstrates their commitment. I'd love to see J-Lo take a risk like this, but I'm not holding my breath. Okay. Well, Rosalie... I think I'm going to have to dispute you on this. Oh, okay. First of all, there were a couple of sketches where uh, on Saturday Night Live when she was um, unattractive. The hardware store sketch was definitely um, like non-J-Lo sexy. I would agree with you, but I would also agree with Rosalie that that was kind of the only punchline in that whole sketch. Uh, is like, look at J-Lo with bad hair on. Whatever, master, like I'm pleasing nobody by walking in the middle, but I'm telling you that that's my thought. Like it wasn't that funny on its own otherwise. I think, I think as we have, we discussed in that episode, I don't know um, what her demands were going in, but I think we established on that episode that, you know, you had your conspiracy theory. I don't know that the writers were particularly like, you know, inspired to, you know, throw down their best shit with that. Um, so I'm not convinced that J-Lo can't be convinced or wouldn't be willing to be unattractive for whatever, for whatever that means. I think Rosalie's larger point stands. We haven't seen that from J-Lo yet, but as we've been talking about, we're on the precipice of a big year for her. So I I agree with Rosalie that I think it's something that would be really appetizing to see and that I'd be interested to see if she pursues in the coming projects. Yeah, I don't, listen, mainly what I, what I just, like what I'm bumping up against is um, needing to see women, quote, go ugly for Oscar. I think that, there are certain performances that guilds and academies reward, especially the academy. Uh-huh. And it is like, oh, like I love it when the hot girl becomes monster and only then can I see her talent. Well, you know what? Look a little harder. Like, can Kate Blanchett do Ramona in Hustlers? Fuck no. I don't disagree with you at all. And yet I do agree with Rosalie that I think sexy, not just attractive or pretty or whatever, is almost a, it's almost like a brand name. It's like Jennifer Lopez perfume, sexy. Like it's, it's a bit more of a high level highlight 
on her resume. And while I don't think that's the whole of Jennifer Lopez, I can see her point about that being the watchword for the SNL writers and that being the place where they come from. Yeah. I mean, I've been pitching to you for weeks that I want to do a dedicated J-Lo episode and I want to go deeper into it um, and like, you know, save all my best points for that. But I will say that there's a particular skill in the role and how she played Ramona that is unfortunately being overlooked because of either her sexiness, whether overt or something we collectively penalize her for, that speaks to also art involving women where they are sexy and it's not taken seriously. And I do believe it comes from the same place. And right now I'm just over it. Right. And where they're in women's environments, such as a, a strip club and those things that are inherently female. I think that part of it, I hear what you're saying, Rosalie, and I get it that, you know, we, we, we want to see her, um, maybe not looking so gorgeous all the time. Maybe when, first of all, it's not possible. (laughs) I'm not sure that it is, but you know, I don't think that people make the same argument about Kate Blanchett and she looks amazing almost all the time. So to be continued, uh, as we go into, yeah, what is sure to be a year of JLo. Um, final note about SNL, because uh, S sent us that note about um, sketches and choosing them. This most recent episode of SNL was hosted, of course, by Eddie Murphy, and it's probably the most going to be the most po- talked about episode of Saturday Night Live this year for sure, but probably over the last few years. Um, I watched it. I, you know, I love Eddie Murphy. I was around during those original, um, characters, but there was a sketch, a digital sketch that was dropped for time. That is the A.D. Bryant Lizzo sketch that now that people have seen it, everybody considers to it to be one of, if not the strongest sketch of the night. And it didn't air. It didn't involve like Eddie Murphy. It was Lizzie in 80. And so it's interesting the decisions about sketches that come up, of course, you know, if you're Lorne Michaels, you're like, Eddie's back home, home for the first time in literally 25 years. My executive decision is going to be to drop the sketch that didn't have him at all. And yet, now that this sketch is out there, people are like, holy fuck, this might be the best sketch of the season. Interesting how decisions fall. I mean, uh, We could go into an SNL podcast for hours, but uh, yes, what I will say is that what was most notable about that episode is that Eddie Murphy has zero worries about runtime or the rundown. Clearly his improvs, which are amazing and made him made Eddie Murphy, were also throwing the schedule of the show into chaos. Update went way longer than it was supposed to So it's a different kind of a show. Um, Okay, more mail. Yeah, let's do it. Um, This is from another Jessica. Jessica says, Duanna's comment of Scarlett Johansson being a bad picker made me think of her personal life, and it seems like that theory applies there too, being on the cusp of a third marriage. Also, talk of Gwen Stefani's annulment, but Blake's been married twice before too. Wouldn't those also have to be annulled for the church to let them in? I have no idea how that works, but his marriages haven't been mentioned anywhere in the coverage that I've seen. 
Um, so we didn't talk about Gwen and Blake on the show. That was just like sort of, uh, you know, a connected theory. So um, what do you think about Jessica's linking of Scarlett Johansson's bad picker in her professional life to her personal life? The thing is that uh, films and choices, uh, project choices are meant to be a sequence of choices, right? One after the other after the other. Um, I think... Uh, broadly, I think that we are at the end of a generation where, like, marrying for life is concerned, and I think it's probably healthy not to think of marriages as having been failed, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's probably better to look at something as, like, that worked for a time and now it isn't. I wouldn't presume to know her perspective or Blake Shelton's for that matter or whatever and go like, oh, do you feel like you're going to get it right this time? Yeah. Um, I do think there's something interesting about being all in, like not just dating people, but being like, no, I'm getting married. Let's do the whole hog. Yeah. Uh, and then not doing so. But I think I, I'm kind of I'm kind of into the idea of somebody getting married three times and being like, yeah, no, I believe. I want to I do this again. What I will say is that there's an interesting parallel to um, Scarlett Johansson and Ryan Reynolds because uh, before our Scarlett Johansson um, episode, we talked about Ryan Reynolds and, Duanna, you had a new insight on him after he appeared on SNL, mm -hmm. um, which is when you were like, oh, yeah, finally, I, I might get it a little bit more. Yes. He has, too, in the past, had a bad picker. and You mean project-wise? Well, the parallel here is that project-wise, yes, he's picked badly. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't – he has a movie out on Netflix right now, which is a Michael Bay movie, which is uh, trash and ridiculous. I, I was really hoping you were just going to leave that as, which is a... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet, at the same time, I think we forget that Ryan Reynolds is also, a, like, a serial proposer. Sure. He loves marriage. Like, when we talked about him, I think you confused how many times he'd been married because he was engaged to an Alanis. Yep. They didn't end up getting married, but, I mean, he proposed to her. The intent was there. And then Scarlett. Yeah. And then Blake Lively. Right. So... That's not, that's, that's like, that's adding up. I'm not prepared to, I, like I, this is, poor Jessica did not uh, write this with this in mind, but I'm not prepared to call marriages that don't work out like bad picks. Yeah. I think some are, but I don't think that's the case always. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it is one of those things where, you can go between talking about, you know, Eddie Murphy said the other night on SNL that he has 10 children. I think there are about five or six uh, relationships involved there, too. I yeah. think uh, it's all kinds of things. But I think it definitely speaks to somebody who rides really hard in the direction they think something is going mm -hmm. all the way to the altar, if yeah. you want to go that far. And then... Um, you know, later on maybe has a different perspective. So I think it definitely speaks to people who are all in on something and then are able to see a whole different way of things. What's the, what do we call that? Mercurial? Um, romantic? I guess. Yeah. All of the above. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then there's a related email from Kathleen that uh, says, I love that you paralleled Kirsten Dunst's career with Scarlett Johansson because I've always said that if I could choose any actor's career, I would want Kirsten's. 
uh, and she was pointing out uh, that we had said that Scarlett Johansson maybe was a bad picker, and so she says, who would be your choice for best picker, actor and actress, role-wise? She's talking about a project-wise. And then she goes on to say, this should be a category at the SAGs. Rather than picking best supporting actor based on who was the best in a smaller role, there should be another category about who best supports his or her fellow actors. Uh, she's referring to the fact that we said Brad Pitt is a great supporting actor. Yeah. I think another way of looking at this is, you know, who winds up in all the best stuff, right? The best projects. Oh, I mean, what are we talking about? Film or TV? All of the above. I guess performers. I think, I mean, everybody has a clunker. Anybody we say is going to be, someone will say, yeah, but. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Because even Brad Pitt has a yeah, but. Um, so I wouldn't say that um, there is one person definitively who. Nobody's perfect, no. obviously. So who uh, is really good at this? Um, I would say... I have a male. Go for it. I'm going to go Matthew Reese. Uh, of course, because of the Americans, because I love him. But also he was in The Post at the same time. And then he hosted, we talked about it, I think, briefly, that weird little wine show, yeah. like biking around doing wine. With which Matthew Good. People loved. Yeah. Like he talked about how his mother was like, it's the best thing you've ever done. And those couldn't be more different, right? Yeah. So I feel like Matthew Reese is on a good streak with choosing right yeah. now. Like no one comes to mind because I think I'm, I'm, I can't get around my whole like back pocket. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Um, Saoirse Ronan. Excellent choice. Can't remember. Like I can't, I don't have a yeah, but for Saoirse Ronan. There was that one that she did years ago that was, um, it was like a kind of a Hunger Games-y knockoff. I feel like there was a bow right. and arrow involved. Like Hannah? Hannah, yeah. yeah. It wasn't great, it wasn't, but, but... it wasn't, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Carrie Mulligan? Yeah. Can't is, think of a shitty Carrie Mulligan movie? I'm going to say I like what Mindy Kaling chooses. Um, obviously, she creates a lot for herself, but she also winds up in things, you know, I'm thinking of... Uh, of A Wrinkle in Time or The Morning Show, mm -hmm. she surrounds herself with good people and good projects. So yeah. I think Mindy Kaling has a good picker. And I think, I mean, you know, these are, the ones I'm naming are ones who don't work very often. That's okay. And, but I think that that's something. It's definitely, yeah, yeah the, those two facts are related. So Ryan Gosling? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like it's very rare that he has a real clunk, right? Yeah. He, at bare minimum, you understand why he chose a project. That's right. That's right. So I like uh, I like him for that. Um, also, Carrie, Wa Carrie Washington. Uh-huh. I, I, I like that. Yeah. And I'm going to add, and this is an obvious and an eye roll, but I really like Lin-Manuel Miranda. Mm -hmm. I like what he gets involved in yeah. and... Uh, I always think about him writing the new theme song for uh, the updated Magic School Bus. Yeah. You know, he does that kind of thing, and then he appears making fun of himself on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. I, I like what he does for himself. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I guess more recently, someone like Chadwick Boseman, who, 
like Chadwick Boseman is uh, in his 40s. And I, you know, he's not a house, he wasn't a household name. And he's not a new young kid, right? That's right. And for the, the temptation to come out like immediately after Black Panther and just take everything, you know, we've seen people do that. Um, that is not where he's going. I mean, he's not working that often either, but when he's working, he's working quite selectively. I like that a lot. Great. And finally, I want to end on an email from Aaron about, I think, one of our favorite things that keeps coming up for some reason on this podcast, and that is Ryanair. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have laughed about Ryanair several times. Ryanair is a low-budget airline in primarily the UK. Yeah. Based out of Ireland, I believe. That's right. Um, And... Every time there's a news story about Ryanair, for those of us, uh, for those of you who are just catching up, it's about uh, drunk people behaving really badly on airplanes. Either they're fucking or they're fighting. It's amazing, and I have said multiple times that I kind of want to see this go down. Yes, I I, I want to be there to see you board a Ryanair flight. But yes, <laughs> go on. Okay, so Aaron tells us, Dear uh, Duanna and Lainey, thanks so much for reading my letter on Show Your Work. We've clearly read her letter before. I don't know if it was about Ryanair. I can't remember. It was, yeah. We referenced Aaron's uh, Ryanair letter earlier. Um, I think that's the one she, when she compared it to a bus. Yes, that's right. Or so, we did, and she, <laughs> she confirmed our suspicions. Right. So she has a follow-up. She listened to that episode. Then she played it for her husband, a dub. So that means, I guess, a Dubliner. That's right. And fellow Ryanair frequent flyer. And he loved your reactions, thrilled you both had a laugh. Happy to consult on which Ryanair flights might live up to Lainey's expectations. Hint, anything to Ibiza, Malaga, or en route to some kind of match would be safe bets. I'm sadly, and I by match, I think she meets, like she means like a, a, a soccer Again. match. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sadly usually just flying back and forth from Dublin to Gatwick along with other commuters. Pretty tame, just like most bus rides. Um, Anyway, I always love a Ryanair story. If you have been to Ibiza or Malaga or on a a plane headed to a match on a Ryanair flight, please share your stories. Or even just photos. One day I'm going to get on a Ryanair flight. I feel like this is like a Laney Gossip uh, corporate retreat in in the making. Like we need to fly somewhere yeah. fancy and have to take Ryanair to get there. And is it? Remind me. Is it because they start serving immediately, or people are just fucking looped before they get on? I believe you can actually carry your drink onto the flight. <laughs> I think Aaron's last email said that the lounges, like the Ryanair lounges, are. Basically, they have a lounge? It's a low-budget airline with not, a lounge? Okay, well, like every airport lounge, okay. right? Like, you know, like the gate, right? Okay, okay. Um, but I think her point is that they're basically already free-for-alls um, and that you basically can carry that party that's happening at the lounge, at the gate, right onto the bus with no interruption. Let me ask you this to bring it back to work. Does Ryanair Inc., Incorporated, whatever... Like that their brand is this. A hundred (laughs) percent. Oh my God. Like, do you think Contiki tours are still a thing? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, When I was young, I'm sure you'll remember this, like in your late teens, early twenties, 
people took Contiki tours, which were like travel groups, right? Planned travel trips. What am I trying to say? Not for family. No, but it was a known thing that on a Contiki tour, you're going to do some stupid stuff, drink embarrassing liquor, like like bad liquor in and of itself. And there's a lot of sex, right? Like it's a bit cheesy. It's a bit sexy. It's a bit whatever. I think there are people for whom that's a legit draw and times in your life when that's a legit draw, Right. right? Yes, I think Ryanair knows this. Yes, I think they probably sigh every time like a well-heeled couple wearing cashmere appears because they're like, you guys, this is not for you. You should not be taking this flight. Like I think that they're like, yeah, we got our niche. I don't think I have a Ryanair wardrobe. Uh, All you have is Ryanair wardrobe. You have like athletic wear and like… It, like, think about going to a game. I've seen you dress to go and watch, like... Okay, like joggers and a sweatshirt is absolutely. good? Absolutely. Okay, I, yeah. thought, I thought it was, like, you, you know, low-rise jeans from, like, 2003 and crop tops. I think that would be very acceptable. But my point is, it, especially <laughs> right. if we're going to a match, to yeah. your point, right? Okay. I think you can also be in a... I think you could fully walk on wearing your bikini and nobody would blink. <laughs> But I think also, like, your athletic wear and so forth is going to do a really good job. Okay. Well, thank you again, Erin, for your follow-up on Ryanair. Um, Please continue to send your Ryanair anecdotes. Also, please continue to send us your work emails, period. We love hearing about how work goes for you, how you think about the work of Hollywood, when you're at your work and how we are closing or widening the gap between the two. As we look ahead to work in 2020, thank you so much for supporting our work in 2019. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, leave reviews, leave comments. They help us so much. And at the risk of being earnest at the end of the year, I think that you all can tell we have a blast doing this podcast. So we are really, really delighted and lucky to get to do it for you and that you tell us you like it. Until next time, work hard. Enjoy your work. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.